chapter 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 3. So go ahead and open your Bibles to that this morning. Our topic is moving, is titled Moving Beyond Shame. Moving Beyond Shame. We're going to look at the man and the woman in the garden hiding in shame this morning. Any uh, Band of Brothers fans out out there? You like the series Band of Brothers? Anybody? I saw female hands up. Females, raise those hands up. I want to see that again. That is awesome. Um, Band of Brothers is a, a, and not many men rose their hands. Is it a bad movie that we shouldn't raise our hands for that in church or something like that? Um, that is a World War II series. I had my, my grandpa and his four brothers uh, were in World War II. So I am a World War II fanatic. Right, kids? They're like, hey, what should we watch for a movie? I'm like, why don't we watch Saving Private Ryan? That'd be a good family movie, you know, stuff like that. That's, that's me. Um, just, saw, just saw there's some DNA testing being done on veterans, um, soldiers who passed away. We have a family member who went missing in Germany. He was a tanker. His tanker got blown up. So I love World War II stuff. So I figured I'd start on this weekend with a World War II illustration, the movie Band of Brothers. There's a battle scene in this movie. Um, they're in the forest of the Ardennes, and, and uh, there's a huge firefight going on. And there are bullets whizzing by, and the American soldiers are on the edge of this forest. They're in foxholes, and they are taking cover. I mean, if you put your head up, you're likely to get shot. There's just heavy machine gun fire going on, and... Eventually, the uh, lieutenant comes up and says, we got to go. You guys, move on up. we got to fight. you got to win this field. And uh, there's one soldier in particular panicking, scared to death. And Lieutenant Spears comes up to him, and here's what he says to the man. I think this is a great illustration on dealing with a topic of shame this morning. He says this to the soldier who's scared to death, hit, sunk down in his foxhole. He said, we're all scared. You hide in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you will be able to function as a soldier's supposed to function. I thought that was great. Some of us are so busy trying to keep our flesh alive and happy, we don't realize it's already dead. The sooner we accept our flesh is dead the sooner we could function as a soldier of Christ is supposed to function. I love that quote. So the soldier gets up and goes into firefight and survives that one, dies the next scene. But <laughs> that is one of my favorite lines in Band of Brothers. Satan has a plan for your life. His plan is to steal life. His plan is to kill people and destroy men and women. He intends to fill you with shame and then leave you there. Hopefully powerless, hidden behind a mask, ineffective to do what God has created you to do. But God has a different plan for those of us who sin. Do you ever have one of those birthday candles that keeps relighting? You ever see those? I love those candles. Shame is kind of like those candles. 
you blow it out, you deal with it, and it sparks back to life, doesn't remind you of what you've done. And you blow it out again, you, you try to get things right, and it lights up again, reminds you of what you've done. More annoying than those candles are the family members who, who put out the candle with water and ruin your fun, right? <laughs> Shame is a lot like a candle. It keeps creeping up. Shame paralyzes many good men and women. In fact, I do a lot of counseling, and shame is the thing that is destroying the men in this church. It's their sin, but then they get pinned down by this shame. They can't move beyond it. They believe things such as, how can I serve the Lord when I've sinned in this area again and again and again? And that cloud of shame, those bullets of shame, beats them down where men just sit around in church feeling hamstrung from serving the Lord. Sometimes sin is public and everybody knows it. Sometimes it's secret and nobody knows it. And I think it's that secret one that has slowly eroded male leadership in the church and in our nation. That's why I want to dig into it this morning with you. Women too, particularly men. Edward Tiber and Faith Tiber in their book, The Interpersonal Process and Therapy, an Integrative Model, says that shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Two distinct domains that shame is expressed are the consciousness of self as bad and the other is self as inadequate. It plays a central role in many psychological disorders as well, including depression, paranoia, addiction, and borderline conditions. Sexual disorders and many eating disorders are largely disorders of shame. Both physical abuse and sexual abuse also significantly involve shame. Also, shame has been found to be a very strong predictor of post-traumatic stress disorder. In some circles of psychology, shame is an enemy of progress. To a degree, I agree with that. To a degree, I disagree. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, shame, not, in, not embarrassment. We're not talking about embarrassment here. Embarrassment is people saw something that you did and you feel like a dork and your face is red. Shame is that secret feeling, the feeling you get even if you're doing something wrong alone. All right, we're not talking about embarrassment here. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, shame is to drive us to the precious cross. It should be a catalyst to progress, a warning light letting us know that we need God's help, his grace, his kindness and righteousness. It lets us know that we need to cry out to God due to wrong living. Then, when either coming to Jesus or being reminded that he bore our shame, we can move past the shame and move on towards joy and effective living for him. So there's a question in your bulletin. Uh, feel free to follow along the back of your bulletin. Take some notes if you'd like to. question is this. Do you carry shame with you? Any, write down in your bulletin, maybe you want to write in some other language so the person next to you can't read it, Elvish or some, Big Latin or something like that. Do you carry 
shame, that weight, that cloud of shame with you. What are you ashamed of? What is that stubborn sin that keeps creeping up, making it hard to mortify? What is that? Do you carry the weight of shame over things that you have done? What are you going to do about it? Is there a way to be free from the shame? Or is it something that will weigh you down for life? And I want to answer the question, is God willing to remove that heavy burden of shame for something you've done? We pick up in Genesis 3, verse 1. Kind of a narrative between God and the man and the woman and the serpents. Let me read it, and I'm going to make some notes um, in the passage. So, starting out with, number one, the sin. And as we read this, think of these questions. What was Satan's intent here? Was it to help the man and woman become enlightened? Or was it to destroy man? What was his intent? It was to destroy man, wasn't it? It always is. Let's read together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, there he is causing some doubts already. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Serpent said, Well, not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, See the temptation here? And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate it. Now pay attention to this, men. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate it. Now what happened here? What happened is they disobeyed God in here. They disobeyed God in their mind, in their heart, and their action, their mind. This fruit became greater than God. Eating a piece of fruits became more important to them than walking in a relationship with their creator. That's what happened in their mind. In their hearts, they had a desire, a longing. To taste it. Man, does that look good. If only for a moment I can enjoy that fruit. And in their actions, they disobeyed God. They ate it. Adam failed in his leadership as a man. He watched his wife sin and silently stood by and watched her do it. Then he ate it himself, either due to taste or maybe even a passion to be like his wife, Eve, Second, they also disobeyed the word of the Lord to fulfill their own pleasures. You ever do that yourself? You know what God's word says, but you have your flesh is craving this pleasure, and you're like, 
I got to just compromise. I'll, I'll, I'll confess later on. Third, they chose satanic leadership over God's leadership, thus doubting God's good character, trusting him. Fourth, they usurped the protective, good, caring, life-giving leadership of God and stubbornly chose their own way of doing things. Can you relate to that? You ever do that yourself? I do. I see myself in the man and the woman here. Why do we do what we do? Uh, Ricky, you probably finish this quote. Go ahead. Because we want what we want. Why do we do what we do? Because we want what we want. Rick and I did faith uh, counseling training together. That was a bumper sticker that they used uh, very often. Uh, we do this too. We have desires in our flesh that are of flesh. Read Galatians 5 sometimes. Not all desires of the flesh are bad, but some that ignore God's word, his wisdom, and, and they ignore his good leadership. So often, we are so quick to deny God's leadership over our lives. And we seek to please the impulses of our flesh. Thinking somehow, even momentarily, that that thing is better, is more desirable than God. Somehow thinking that we know better than God, thus setting ourselves up against him. Here's their response, uh, verses 7 through 8. You see nakedness in here. Uh, feeling or realizing they were exposed. Shame. Hiding. Not fulfilling what they were made for. Distracted from their created purpose. Verse 7. Then, after they did this, the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. Immediately they hid. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. First, their eyes, you're seeing a lot of senses here, their eyes saw that something was terribly different. That innocence they had, naked together and unashamed, drastically changed. Their eyes saw that something was terribly different. Second, their minds knew that they were exposed they were before, but this was unknown to them. Third, their ears heard the convicting sound of the Lord walking toward them. What direction? Toward them. Keep that in mind. Fourth, their body responded by hiding through fig leaves and among the trees. They ran and hid. Now, what was their response of shame? To hide. They covered themselves to try and mask the shame that they were feeling. Instead of doing what God had designed them to do to work in the garden, they were consumed with hiding. A natural consequence of sin is shame. People deal with shame typically through hiding it, don't we? Typically they put on a mask. Different, people put on different masks to hide their shame. Here are some masks that I've seen uh, both in myself and here are some masks I've seen other people that I've met with uh, 
put on. Number one, the mask of self-image. Some people like to put on the mask of public errors, becoming image-driven. You look on Facebook, and you'll just see that right away. They put on the mask of how they dress. There was a guy, a girl ran to my house once, teen girl, was being beaten by her father, and uh, I brought her in. Shelly and I brought her in the house, and the man's a high-powered lawyer in town. Great. And uh, he said, I'm going to sue you. I said, go for it. I'm not still not giving you your daughter back if you're going to beat her. And he goes, you are ruining my image. Guess what I said to him? You should know me by now. I've been here over a year. No, you're ruining your image by beating your kids. I'll meet you at the police station. So I drove the girl down to the police station to take care of that. He was so much about image. Sometimes we throw that mask on of image. Some people do that. Second mask I've seen, maybe you do this, the mask of control. You can't control your own sin, so you attempt to control the behavior and thoughts of other people. Leanne, you ever see this happen before? You ever run across someone who's done that? She's deep in thought. Are you sleeping during that? <laughs> Have you ever seen someone try to control others because they can't control themselves? You've seen that in counseling. Third, the mask of explaining, I call it. This is my favorite mask. Through defensiveness and justifying your behavior. Let me explain why I did this. And you talk and you talk and talk. So the pers- you want the person to basically say, oh, okay, you're great. Then. <laughs> That's something I do. Number four, the mask of blame shifting. Through justifying your behavior, saying that it isn't really your fault. You blame someone else, just like Adam and Eve we're going to see here. They did that really well, except for the serpent. He didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> Number five, the, the mask of self-defining. Through twisting what God says, thus attempting to minimize sin. There's a song by Christina Aguilera written probably about 75 years ago now. It says, you're beautiful no matter what they say. Words can't bring you down. A pro-sin video, actually, pro-sin song. But just believe that, hey, God made you this way. You are beautiful. There's nothing wrong with you. That's a mask. Next mask, the mask of self-defining. Through twisting what God says, attempting to minimize your sin. I already said that one. Next one, the mask of pity. Through self-loathing. Hoping others will notice how miserable you feel and that they'll build you up and tell you that you're a great person make you feel better about yourself. Look how, look how bad I am. The next mask is the mask of domination. This person, through fault-finding, points out the sins in others so they don't look as bad. Oh, yeah, you think I'm bad. Your feet smell. You know, they start blaming other people, pointing out other people's sins so that they don't look as bad. Next one is the mask of domination. I just said that. I keep repeating these. Someone needed to hear that. Amen. <laughs> Next is the mask of comparison. Through comparing yourself to someone other than God. Most people do this one. I'm not as bad as Hitler. I just, you know... And my thought always when I hear that, I'm not as bad as Hitler, is I wonder what you'd do if you had the power that Hitler had. You'd probably be worse than Hitler, is my thought inside my snarky mind. I usually don't say that. But a lot of people look at the lowest common denominator. And as long as they're not as bad as that, 
Whatever they did is just a little white sin. It's a white lie. It's a little lie. Certainly they're not as bad as Hitler. Sadly, they forget that the standard is not Adolf Hitler of, of purity, right? Who's the standard of purity? It's Jesus. People don't like to hear that. Next one is the mask of hiding. Through hiding and apathy, they give up hope and choose to live among the trees. Next is the mask of, last is the mask of embarrassment. You embrace the sin and it defines everything that you are. Now, sometimes we spend so much time focusing on these masks, adjusting them, getting them right, that we become extremely self-focused and narcissistic. We're great at hiding behind the trees, in the bushes, sowing leaves to cover our brokenness, aren't we? But notice verse 9. If you have your Bible, get out your pen. Get out your pencil and circle the word but in there. This is huge. It starts out by saying, but. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you're naked? I got to watch the tone here. When I was younger, I used to see God as being angry in this passage. Who told you that you were naked? And I think, well, maybe God was, who told you that you were naked? I don't know what tone the Lord had here, so I'm going to read it without tone if possible. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And I heard some women laughing out there. The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Do you suppose God knew, being the all-knowing God, that he knew what they did before they answered the question. Where's Adam and Eve? Where's the man? They were walking with me, now they're gone. Of course he knew. They knew, he knew they were hiding. Man hid from God. Man hides from God. But the word but is there. God takes initiative in this passage. And he does in our lives as well. God took initiative to already move toward restoration. God's heart is holy. But he also loves his creation, particularly people. Creation is good. Humans are very good, right? That's why we're above animals. We're very good, made in his image. God particularly loves his people. Question. What was the man afraid of in this situation? Being seen naked? That he got busted for what he did? What do you think he was afraid of? God calls out, in the, notice in this passage, the specific sin that they dealt with. Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat of? 
couple thoughts here. One, shame without a reason is not healthy shame. When the Spirit convicts you of sin, it's just not going to be a general condemnation of your life and being. When God wants to point a sin out that you've been messing up in, he's going to be very specific. Ooh, Jeff, you did this. You got to get right with this. He didn't say, oh, Jeff, you're just a bad person. That's a satanic thing. God specifically in this passage and in our lives is very specific to call out a particular sin. Shame without a reason is not healthy shame. Some people have that. Unhealthy shame. Two, when the Spirit convicts you of sin, it is very specific. Now, notice the blame shifting. Instead of accepting responsibility for their actions, Adam, even passive-aggressively, blames God for this sin. Sin results in shame, which results in hiding. They have put on figs, they have put on bushes, and blame-shifting as a cover at this point. Sin brought immediate separation from God. Yet, God still goes to the sinners. He goes to you. The man blamed God and the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. And the, and the serpent threw up his temporary hands to say, I, I, I can't. He had nothing. He had no one else to blame. But you'll notice the consequences, verse 14 through 19. Here's what God does. Um, verse 14 says this. The Lord God said to the serpent first, because you have done this, cursed are you. Notice this phrase. Cursed are you. He is cursing. He is judging the serpent in this passage. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In this passage, you're already seeing God's work of redemption. The word seed, uh, found in different translations, is singular. Uh, Seed, a offspring, will bring redemption for the sin of man. You're seeing God already moving towards redeeming of sinful people. Now, you can see this enmity, this tension Uh, If you read Revelation 12 sometimes, between the woman and the serpent, um, according to the Moody commentary, the serpent was the only thing that was created, only created being to be judged in this text. Judgment proceeds from condemnation. Cursed are you. Whereas the man and woman are being chastised, which always proceeds from love. That statement, this chastisement, not judgment of man and woman, was really interesting. It was in a commentary, and I've been thinking about this all week because I've always saw God kind of schizophrenic. In the Old Testament, he's kind of mad all the time. In the New Testament, he's really nice, you know. But reading this passage, or reading this commentary, I was thinking, I'm not seeing condemnation of the judgment of the man here, I guess. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I could do a whole sermon on that one right there. 
Uh, you're seeing two. Towards the woman, you're seeing two chastisements. I'll go with that. Two chastisements. One, increased pain in childbirth. Two, friction in marriage. This is the first time that the woman felt vexed by her husband, isn't it? This is the first time the woman experienced being thrown under the bus. Adam became self-preserving at her expense. Women, any amen there? No, don't do that. You'll be in trouble. The, the phrase here, your desire shall be for your husband, that's, more, that's taken more as a conquering or almost as a tension in a relationship for her husband. It's not a, he's just so handsome, because you know your husband's not very handsome. It's a desire to conquer, to dominate in the relationship, to wear the pants in the family. The phrase, he shall rule over you, is an imbalanced, unloving, harsh treatment, keeping his wife in order. And we see this a lot in marriages. So increased pain, tension in relationship. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. I was outside studying this this morning. And I saw the weeds in my backyard, the thorns and thistles. And after thanking Adam, <laughs> I said, you know, that's a good reminder of sin. Every time I see thorns and thistles, it can remind us of our sin and our need of salvation. If it wasn't for sin, I wouldn't have to pull thorn bushes and sticker bushes. It's a great reminder. God judged the ground, resulting in frustration in work. You ever deal with that at work? Anybody have a job that's not almost always frustrating? <laughs> Two, God brought in physical death, mortality. Now, I was thinking of this this week as well. Physical death, I think, is necessary and loving of God to do that. Here's why. Imagine being stuck in your fallen, sinful state for eternity. Affected by the consequences of sin and the judgment on creation. That'd be terrible. At least for me it would. In fact, death has become a blessing, in a sense, for the created person. Just think about that. One day we will lay aside our earthly tent, our bodies, to pick up a new, glorified body, unaffected by the fall. Now, why did God do this? Why add pain? Why curse the land? Based on what we said above, if this is indeed true, then childbirth, the desire to control, hard labor, and death are all reminders of our sin, which is designed to motivate us to seek God and his righteousness. Some thoughts I had on that. Okay, verse 20 through 24, God's response. Notice what God does and does not say here. 
He doesn't leave them in their shame and in the bushes. He clothes them and puts them back to work. Verse 20. The man called his wife, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest, they, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. A couple things God does not do here. God does not swoosh away in anger. Did you ever see the picture of Adam and Eve walking out the garden? They, they look all shameful and depressed. Have you seen that picture? God does not scream at them, I don't, I don't see, and, and whoosh, him, whoosh himself away and leave forever. God didn't send any lightning bolts to zap them and start over again, right? David Crowder has a song, How He Loves Us. I think that was more God's approach, was grace in the situation. God did not shame them and leave them in shame. God dealt with their shame by one, providing clothes for them. He even killed an animal. God takes initiative. While we were yet sinners, the New Testament says, Christ died for the ungodly. God is a God who takes initiative. God removed them from the garden, protecting them from returning, and sent them to do what he and she were created to do. God sent his son eventually to deal with this once for all, to remove their shame permanently by taking it upon the cross. God responded to their sin by taking initiative, graceful, merciful initiative. God doesn't leave them in their shame. Did they sin? Yes. Terrible. God steps forward, deals with the sin. God cares for them and dresses them. God sends them back to do what they are created to do. Satan would love for them to be in misery and shame and stay there until they commit suicide, until they take Prozac, till they just lay in bed all day. That's what Satan would love to do. He wants to destroy but God is a life-giving God. He moves people beyond that. So what should our response be to all this? A couple thoughts. One, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We sin. We men, women, we all are under sin. We all sin. We're all guilty before God. There is none that are not guilty. All of us struggle with this thing called sin. We continue to, with the same motives, choose things that God has said no to. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all go astray. We're prone to wander. Remember that old hymn? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. We all grieve God's spirit, even as believers at times. We all have this thing called the flesh, 
which desires things opposed to what the Spirit desires. Read Galatians 5, Romans 7. Paul mentions this struggle that he has himself with the flesh in Romans 7. We will struggle with these impulses of the flesh until this flesh is put away. Sin and temptation to sin and stumbling is normative for a human being. You are not the only one who deals with the flesh in here. I deal with the flesh. JD deals with the flesh. Micah, you really deal with the flesh. We all struggle. I'm just teasing you, Micah. We all struggle with this thing called the flesh. You get into your mind. It's not You're not unique in your struggle. But if Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you have taken him as your Savior, if you're living for him as your Lord, if you are in Christ, but applies to you. But our flesh has been crucified with Christ. To the cross, Galatians 2.20. Therefore, we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. So we put to death the deeds of the flesh. There's an old word called mortification. We mortify. Romans 8.13, Colossians 3.5. John Piper talks about killing sin. Our flesh is nailed to the cross. It is dying a slow, miserable death. We help. If we put that sucker to death is what we do, okay? We mortify the flesh. We, with the Lord, work to put it to death. Next. But we don't do this perfectly. Christ knows we will fail. And that is why he tells us that he is our sympathetic high priest, Hebrews 2.18, Hebrews 4. He understands our weakness. He understands our struggle. Yet we strive to be conformed because we love him. And with the spirit, our spirit craves to be holy. Our spirit craves to be more and more like Christ. So what do we do when we sin and feel shame set on us? One, brokenness. We let shame drive us to the cross where we see our sin placed on Jesus where we find our sympathetic high priest. Second, remember that this is not us, but sin living in us, Paul talks about. So we rejoice in that. And that this struggle is both common and temporary. In fact, struggle is a sign. We can rejoice that struggle is a sign of life. Before I was a Christian, I would just do what I wanted to do, right? When, before you were a Christian, if I wanted to drink, I drank. I enjoyed it. I wanted to beat up a bully. I beat up the bully and I walked away with a smile on my face. But when I became a Christian, there's, there became an internal struggle. My flesh wanted to beat up the bully. But the spirit living inside me said, that's not a good idea, Corn. You probably shouldn't do that. It was probably at that time the teachers started to like me. (laughs) When I became a Christian, there was something inside me that became attention. The Spirit said this, live this way. The flesh said, but I want to live this way. And there became this tension. That struggle to want to honor God, and then you have that temptation. That struggle is a 
time to rejoice when you see that because you know that the Holy Spirit's alive and is working in you. I'm 40, so I've got to look for, for things a little bit closer before I find them. <laughs> Third, confess. 1 John 1. It, when you sin, confess that you have sinned. And remember that this is why Christ died for you and for me. Fourth, make necessary adjustments so you don't do that again. That's repentance. Repentance is a change course and direction. Read Matthew 5 through 7, especially 5 verse 27 through 30. Or read 1 John. We repent. We say, God, that was wrong. I confess that to you. God, help me not do that again. And then you come up with a plan. What am I going to do so I don't sin in that area again? Because I want to please God. I want to be holy. You've got to make the steps. Because you have your flesh that's going to be with you. And you've got to learn to keep that in line. Five, get up and get back to what God has called you to do. Don't allow Satan to keep you in the bushes of shame. Get going. When you fail, do these things. Take an hour, take two hours, and mourn and grieve and be broken over it. But you've got to get to a point where you're going to say, this is enough groveling about this. God doesn't want me to stay here. I'm going to stand up, I'm going to tie my boots, and I'm going to continue advancing and attacking the gates of hell because they will not overcome. And you go back out there and you get involved and you build the kingdom and you love your family and you love others and you share the gospel and you do what God's called you to do. You've got to get back up. Six, celebrate that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help others come out of the bushes and into the light. That's number seven. Preach it. Help others move beyond shame. And how they move beyond shame is Jesus. In conclusion, Satan's slithery focus is to steal, kill, and destroy. Too many men are pinned down by the bullets of shame. They are exactly where the enemy wants them, buried in a foxhole, hiding and ineffective. He has essentially taken them out of the fights. But this is not where, where God left Adam and Eve. And it is not where he wants us to stay. We have a job to do. We are to move beyond shame and get in the game of building his kingdom and helping more and more people to glorify him. So deal with the Lord. Make the steps. Get in the game. Now, I know a lot of uh, men um, here struggle with shame and struggle with sins that they've, they've been dealing with for a long time. If shame is a struggle for you, uh, see me. I'd be glad to have coffee with you and, and walk with you through it, uh, help you get victory over it. I don't want to see the men of our church become in, be ineffective, become ineffective and, and not able to do what the Lord's called them to do and miss that great opportunity. Okay? So come see me if you'd like to talk about it. I'd be happy to walk with you through it. Let's pray together. Father, you're holy, and you could have destroyed Adam and Eve and made others. You could have just left us to our own devices and die. 
You have that right. You are holy. You are perfect. You're, you can't just ignore sin. But you're also a God of love. And you took initiative. You walked towards Adam and Eve and you clothed them and cared for them, put them back to their created task. Satan wants us to believe that we're broken and ruined. We're damaged goods. You do not, you do not teach that in your Bible. You teach we sin, we need saving, we need Jesus. But you also teach us to be about your kingdom and to do what you want, you've created us to do. So, Father, if and when we sin, help us not fall prey to the chains of Satan and the weight of Satan. Help us to deal with you when we sin because you're holy. But help us to also move out in joy that the sin has been paid for and that you've come and you've given us life and you've called us to work with our hands. You've called us to go and make disciples. So help us do that, Lord. Father, help us as a church to have eyes to see those who are caught up, caught up in shame, that we could come alongside them and we could remind them of your word and your truths. Help us come in here with eyes to see that we could be ministers to one another, and be encouragement to one another, Lord. Father, I praise you. You are so good. In Jesus' name, amen.